welcome to the Hope in the Hard Times sermon series. I preached this series of messages back in 2012 at the Metropolitan Bible Church, shortly after I had gone through treatments for cancer. Now in 2020, as we face hard times related to the coronavirus, we at Heritage College and Seminary are re-releasing the sermon set along with a companion study guide. As you dig deeper into God's Word, you will receive hope in the hard times. Well, are you familiar with the concept of fight or flight? You ever heard of the fight or flight response? You know what I'm talking about there, fight or flight response? Fight or fight, flight response speaks of changes that happen in our bodies whenever we find ourselves in danger, especially suddenly in danger. Like the moment that you perceive that you are in a dangerous situation, your body begins to automatically take action. Adrenaline and cortisol are pumped into your bloodstream. Your heart rate picks up. Your, your muscles tense. Your vision narrows. Your hearing perks up. In, in essence, what happens is that your body automatically goes on high alert so that you will be ready to either fight or take flight in danger. That's kind of the way God has made it. God has made us so that we can do this. But did you know that God has another response that he also wants us to have in a time of crisis? He also wants us to have the response of faith. Not just fight, not just flight, but also faith. But the challenge is this. The fight or flight response kicks in automatically. Like if you're in danger, if you're in a tough situation, automatically, involuntarily, unconsciously, your body will begin to react that way. But the faith response is different. Faith isn't necessarily easy or automatic or involuntary. In fact, the faith response in crisis is something you have to choose, consciously choose. And the faith response is even more crucial and more critical if you are in a crisis that's not just a short-term emergency, but a long-term challenge. You see, the fight-or-flight response works really good in the short run, but it doesn't work well in the long run. Like, if you stay revved up and you stay on high alert for a long period of time, what happens? Well, eventually, you just kind of fry out. You burn out. You kind of wash out. But a faith response can actually help you, especially in a crisis or a difficulty that hangs on, because the faith response slows down the RPMs that are going inside of you. The faith response actually calms you down and lets you find some rest in the middle of some stress. A couple of weeks back here at the Met, we launched into a new series that's called Hope in the Hard Times. And as I hear the stories of the folks that attend this church, I am very mindful of the fact that many of us here, maybe most of us here, have either recently been through or are currently in the midst of something that would qualify as a hard time. There's something in our life that is adding great stress and pressure to us. And the problem is, is that when we go through those hard times, inwardly, we start to rev up and our hearts get agitated and we get anxious. 
But God wants something different from us. He wants us to be able to experience a growing sense of peace that replaces that inner turmoil we feel when we're in the middle of a hard time. He actually wants us to move to the place of rest, faith rest, even when we're under duress. Most of you know this past year has been filled uh, for Linda and me with a challenge that did not quickly go away. Kind of been walking through our own journey, our own hard time. And one of the lessons that we became aware that God was trying to build into us was how to find rest in the middle of it, even before it was over. And this morning, I want to take you to a passage that God used in my life to begin to teach me more about this concept of resting in the middle of hard times, this this concept of having a faith rest. Now, I, I must admit to you that it's not like I feel I've learned this lesson all the way. I'm still very much in process of learning it. But God has been working in me, and I think my wife would say the same thing. God has been working in us to teach us more about moving towards rest, even when you feel under stress. This morning, I want to take you to a passage that tells the story of a man who started out with that fight-or-flight response, but as we watch his story, he moves to the faith response. He starts out literally running, but he ends up resting. And his story has a lot to say to you. It has a lot to say to me about what it means to experience quiet rest in the middle of hard times. Anybody else here interested in that? I mean, that's something we all long for. It gives us hope. So today, as we continue to talk about hope in the hard times, I want to talk to you about a quiet rest. And to do that, we're going to look at the story, a part of the story of a man named Elijah. His story is recorded for us in the book of 1 Kings. And today, we're going to look at one chapter of his story that's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 19. So would you turn there and let's talk about a quiet rest. 1 Kings 19. If you need a Bible here, we have some blue Bibles here and in the Fellowship Center. And in the blue Bibles, it's page 255, 255. Today, we'll be in 1 Kings 19. I want to talk to you about the whole idea of finding rest in the middle of a time of great stress. How do you move from fight or flight to faith? How do you move from running to resting? What does that look like? I think the Lord has some things to teach us through one of his faithful servants, a man named Elijah. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this wonderful story together. Father, this morning as we sit here together, some of us are in the middle of situations that still keep us agitated and anxious. Or it's not been that far in our distant past when we can remember times when we were when we were wrapped up and we couldn't seem to slow it down. Father, today we actually are quieting our hearts right now in your presence. We're still before you. And we're inviting you in these next moments to whisper to us through your word, words that will speak our hearts towards that place of rest and peace in you. I pray you would do that, Lord. We need you. We want you. We invite you. We welcome you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
First Kings chapter 19 begins with these words. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, one of these slain prophets. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Those opening verses in Elijah's story here tell us something that we already have figured out about hard times. And it's simply this. Elijah's story reminds us of something that's true of our story. It's simply this. Hard times can get us running. Hard times can get us running. When we hit these kind of crisis moments, fight or flight kicks in, and we can start running like Elijah did. In fact, we can start running in several different ways. There's several ways we run. First of all, in Elijah's story, we see that we can start running scared. Elijah is running scared. Verse 3, when he, when he saw, literally it says, or the NIV translated, when he, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. He's running scared. Now he has, humanly, he has good reason to be running scared. Verses 1 and 2 tell you a little bit of what was happening that triggered this response of flight. And what we find is that Elijah had just found out that there was a credible death threat against his life. Jezebel, the queen, had issued a threat, a warning to say, hey, in 24 hours or less, I'm taking you out. I will take you down. Now, the reason she did that, uh, well, to know the reason she did that, you would have to read the previous chapter, chapter 18. Chapter 18 contains one of the most dramatic stories in all of the Bible. I mean, it's one of the, you know, most memorable stories in all of the Bible. It tells the story of Elijah's confrontation with the prophets, the false prophets on Mount Carmel. Are you remembering any of that story? Essentially, what happened was that Elijah faced down 850 false prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, or we often say Baal, and then 400 prophets of Asherah, the goddess. And it's Elijah against 850. And what they do is they decide to have a showdown on top of Mount Carmel to determine which god is supreme. Is the Lord supreme or Baal supreme? Because the Israelites had been swinging towards Baal. So what happens is all the people gather, at least a lot of people gather, including the king, Ahab, and the 850 false prophets build an altar. They put a sacrifice on top, and then they begin to call upon Baal, who, by the way, was called the Lord of Fire. They begin to call upon him to send down fire and to torch the sacrifice to show how powerful he is. And for hours in the midday, they march around their altar. They're crying out. They're calling out. They're chanting. They're dancing. They're taking their swords and cutting themselves. They're they're giving everything they have, and nothing happens. So when they kind of finally spend themselves, Elijah steps up, and he rebuilds the altar, puts a sacrifice on top. And then just to show that there's no tricks going on here, he has the altar drenched three times with jars of water. So there's water everywhere. 
And then Elijah, as it's turning near twilight, quietly but boldly prays and says, God, show them who you are. And God sends down fire from heaven that just torches everything, burns up the the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, licks up the water. All the people say, whoa, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Elijah steps forward and says, then those prophets are false prophets. Seize them. And these 850 prophets are put to death on Mount Carmel. Well, that night, Ahab goes home, and Jezebel, his wife, says, Hi, hon, how was the day at the office? And he goes, you wouldn't believe what happened. You know those prophets that you've been feeding? Verse 18, chapter 18 says they used to eat at Jezebel's table. You know those prophets that you've been supporting? Well, they're all dead. And then he tells the story. Well, Jezebel hears that, and she is enraged. She is not happy. And when Jezebel ain't happy, right? Ain't nobody happy. And so she sends word to Elijah, says, listen, pal, may the gods do to me if I don't take you out by tomorrow. That's not a real bad threat because the gods, her gods couldn't seem to do anything anyway. But anyway, she makes this threat and say, you know, may the gods be severe on me. If I don't take you out, I'm taking you out. Elijah hears that and fight or flight kicks in. He perceives danger and he begins to run. Verse 3 says he goes down to Beersheba. Now, they're up in the north. Mount Carmel's in the northern part of Israel. He goes about 90 or 100 miles south to Beersheba. Why does he go there? To get away from the threat. He's trying to put as much distance as he can between himself and danger. Now, when we read that, I don't know about you, but I don't really feel... I don't feel like, wow, condemning of Elijah. I think, well, I'd probably be running scared too. Like when you're in a crisis, isn't your response to say, I want to put as much distance as I can between me and the problem. You may not get in the car and drive 90 miles south to Potsdam or wherever it is in New York that that would be. You may not run physically, but inside you start running and you start thinking, how can I get to safety? See, hard times can get us running. They did for Elijah. They can get us running scared. The problem is that sometimes you can't outrun hard times, no matter how fast or how far you run. And that's what Elijah finds. He runs, and all he does is run down. He runs himself out. He wears himself out, and he ends up in Beersheba pretty much running out of hope. And that's a second way that hard times get us running, running scared. And ultimately, when we keep running, we can wind up running out of hope. Look how it happens for him. Verse three, please. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. This is what he says. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So Elijah comes down 90 miles or so south to Beersheba. Beersheba is located in the Negev Desert. It's a dry, arid place. He leaves his servant in town, and then he goes a day's journey out into the no man's land, out into the wilderness. So he's as far away from danger as he knows how to get. But all he's doing is running out of hope. He sits down under a broom tree, looks up to heaven, and essentially says, Dear God, take my life. He's despondent. He's discouraged. 
and he prays a prayer that he doesn't really mean. Right? When he says, uh, Lord, take my life, he doesn't really mean that. If he really meant that, if he really wanted to die, all he needed to do was to stay up in the north where Jezebel was, and she would have gladly honored his request, right? So what's he saying when he says he wants to die? He's just saying, I'm hopeless. I, I see nothing here. And it's the same thing for us. When we start running out, you know, from problems, they don't go away. And eventually we just run out of hope. And we find our own little broom tree in our own little desert. And we may say and we may pray things that really we don't mean. But they're an expression of the fact that we feel hopeless. You ever prayed like that? Me too. I mean, we get there. So Elijah starts running scared. He's running out of hope. If you go into verse 5, we find another way that he gets running, and we too, we get running too. He's running on empty, verse 5. Hard times can get us running on empty. Look at how spent he is, verse 5. It says, then he lay down under the tree, the broom tree, and fell asleep. He doesn't even wait for God's answer, right? He says, Lord, take my life. And then before he really interacts with God, he's so exhausted, he falls asleep. And sometimes when hard times hang on for us and we start running, we're doing our best to keep going, but we're running out of hope. And finally, we just run in on empty and we're spent. We're physically, we are emotionally, we are spiritually spent. See, hard times can get us running. Now, it may sound as though I'm saying that running is always a bad thing. But actually, there's a kind of running that's a good thing. We see that in Elijah's story if we continue in verses uh, the end of 5 down through verse 8. Look what happens next. There's a, a fourth kind of running that we see in his story, and this one's good. Verse 5, it says he fell asleep. Then it says, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Here we find Elijah on the run again. He, he now leaves Beersheba, which was like 90 miles south of where Jezebel was, and he goes a couple hundred miles further south. So is he running from Jezebel when he goes further south? I think the texts give us a hint that that's not what's going on. I think there's another kind of running happening here. I think another way hard times can get us running, and this is a good one, is if they get us running towards God. Hard times can get us running. And there's a good side of that if they get us running towards God. Did you notice in verse 8 it says, He went to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Bible scholars tell us that Horeb is probably the same mountain that you and I know as Mount Sinai. It's another name for the mountain that we call Mount Sinai. Or at least it's in that same mountain range. Now, you know Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai is where Moses went to receive the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai is where God met with his people in this memorable way and gave them his law. And Elijah is headed for Horeb. He's headed for Mount Sinai. He gets there and he goes into a cave on the side of the hill. 
Why is he there? I don't think he's just running from Jezebel anymore. He is running towards God. Now, it's not that Elijah thought that God lived on Mount Sinai. Some of the ancient peoples believed that gods were like localized deity, that they had a territory. And if you wanted to know that God, you had to kind of get in their turf. Elijah didn't think that. Why, he had seen God's power way up in the north on, on Mount Carmel. And, and by the brook where the ravens had fed him, he'd seen God's power there. He knew God was not some localized deity. He was the Lord of heaven and earth. So why does he go all the way south to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai? I think it was probably because he knew that that was a place in his nation's history where God had met them in an unmistakable way. And he wanted to get closer to God. He wanted to get to that place where maybe God would meet him like he'd met Moses. So he heads south. He's running towards God. Now, there's a lesson in that for you and me. Our times can get us running, and that's not a bad thing if they get us running towards God. Not just running away from trouble, but running towards God. Not just running to get further from problems, but running to get closer to God. And when hard times push us to run towards God, those hard times are actually helping us. Now, for us to get closer to God, to run towards God, doesn't necessarily mean making a 200-mile trek into the desert. But it will take an intentional pursuit. It will take pulling away from some of the things you're normally absorbed in and going intentionally saying, God, i got to get closer to you right now. I've got some things going in my life that have me running scared and running out of hope, and running on empty. So I, I know I got no hope other than running towards you. And there becomes this intentional pursuit of getting closer to God in the middle of times that are crushing you. Now, our example on doing this is actually Jesus. There's a verse that's recorded in Luke's gospel that's fascinating to me. Listen to this, Luke 5, 16. Just a short little verse, almost it seems like incidental. But it's huge. Luke 5.16 says this, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That's the whole verse. Listen to it again. But Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. It's saying in the midst of his busy life, with people crowding around him, with people trying to kill him, the Pharisees plotting his life, Jesus often, not just he did it once or twice. He often, he repeatedly withdrew. And where did he go? He went to a lonely place. He, he got away from the crowds. Well, why did he do that? To pray. To get closer and to enjoy communion with his Father. And if you read the Gospels, you find that as Jesus gets closer to the cross, more and more he withdraws and has these times. In fact, the night before he's crucified, what does he do? He takes his, his 12 and uh, Judas leaves. So the 11 of them cross the Kidron Valley and they go up to the Mount of Olives and they go to, uh, they go to that Garden of Gethsemane and he has them stay and he takes Peter and James and John and then he even leaves them and he goes off by himself and he prays. What's he doing? He's running to his father. He's facing death. He knows that things are converging. Where does he run to? He runs to get closer to God. 
So let me ask you a question. Are hard times in your life getting you running? And if so, which way are you running? Are you just running to try to get away from problems? Are you just trying in your own strength to try to say, I can outdistance this. If, if I just can get away, if I can dodge, if I can ignore, if I can move here, maybe I'll get away. If that's the case, you're going to end up probably running out of hope and running on empty. Or are your hard times pushing you to run closer to God to say, Lord, I have to find you here in a way that maybe I have not found you before in a long time. I am intentionally pursuing you. Which way are you running right now? Hard times get you running. Which way are you headed? Now, let me tell you some good news is that if you choose in the middle of your hard times to intentionally pursue closeness with God, if you, as it were, head for Mount Horeb, God will meet you there and he will give you a gift. He will give you a gift that is precious, a gift that seems so elusive in the middle of hard times. He will give you, maybe not all at once, and maybe not as much as you would long for, but he'll start to give you, as you can receive it, a gift of rest, of rest. He did that for Elijah. He'll do that for you. In fact, Elijah's story begins to change now. We saw that in the first part of his story, the hard times can get us running. And now what we're going to see in the latter part of this chapter is this. God wants to get us resting. Hard times get us running, and God wants to get us resting. As we run to Him, He wants to actually speak into our lives and turn the restlessness we feel into some rest. Look at how He did it for Elijah. It, it actually starts when Elijah's under the broom tree. Remember that back in verses 6 and 7? Elijah's under the broom tree, and he is uh, complaining that he wants to die. And look what happens. Look how God begins to give him rest. He begins to give him rest in a unique way. Pick it up at verse 5. It says, he lay down and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down. So he goes to sleep again. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. And that tips you off to one of the ways that God wants to get you resting when you're in the middle of a hard time. He wants to get you resting. He wants to get you resting to refresh your body. He helps us to be resting to refresh our bodies. God deals with us in a very practical, physical way. And he helps us to learn to experience some rest so that our bodies can begin to rest. Isn't it fascinating? Elijah had just prayed, Lord, why don't you just take my life? And when the Lord sends an angel to meet him, the angel doesn't deal with Elijah's grumbling, does he? He doesn't say, Elijah, what a stupid prayer that is. What, Elijah, what are you doing here? You've been running scared. Elijah, is that what a prophet of God is supposed to do? Elijah, right now you're embarrassing us. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, the angel doesn't really say anything other than, here's some bread, here's some water, why don't you eat, and then sleep. So Elijah sleeps, and then when he wakes up, the angel's back to say, hey, here's, he needs some more food. You see what he's doing? God is taking care of Elijah on a very fundamental, 
physical level. I love the fact that our Creator knows that we are these holistic beings and our physical needs are important to Him. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And he knows that in the middle of times of crisis that we wear down and our bodies get tired. And he comes and he speaks to us words that say, slow down, eat, drink, sleep. Last February, when I got the news about, the bad news about what was going on in my body physically, the, my health issues, right after that, like a few days later, we got word that my father had been rushed to the emergency out west and that he was precariously hovering life and death. So I had stuff going on in my life and my dad, and so I was at the office here trying to find airline tickets to get out there as quick as I can. And Lou Ranahan uh, stuck his head into my office. Uh, Lou was our executive director at the time and a dear friend. He stuck in and asked me how I was doing and talked to me for a bit. And then he smiled and he said this. I'll never forget it. He smiled and he said to me, Remember, he maketh me to lie down. He maketh me to lie down. You know where that's from, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down. Evidently, sheep are not the smartest creatures that God made, and they might need a little extra help to even lie down. They get skittish. They get afraid. Whatever it is, the shepherd sometimes has to make them lie down. And we humans maybe aren't a whole lot smarter and sometimes God has to come to us and maketh me to lie down. Sometimes he brings things into our life that put us on our back and he says, listen, you need to slow down, eat and sleep and drink. Somebody once said that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap. And God knows that. He maketh me to lie down. In fact, if we don't do that, if we don't slow down, if we don't allow him to minister to us and speak to us physical rest, we just keep spiraling down and we get more and more exhausted. We get what Ruth Barton calls dangerously tired. During this time uh, that we were kind of going through this, uh, we read a book called An Invitation to Silence and Solitude by Ruth Haley Barton. Excellent book. Listen to what she says about being dangerously tired. See if any of this resonates with you. Barton says this, when we are dangerously tired, we feel out of control, compelled to constant activity by inner impulses that we may not be aware of. For some reason we can't quite name, we're not able to linger and relax over a cup of coffee. We can't keep from checking voicemail or email just one more time before we leave the office or before we go to bed at night. We can't stop cleaning or doing repairs and projects in order to take a walk in the evening or be quietly available to those we love. Rather than reading anything that for the sheer pleasure of it, we pile our nightstands with books and professional journals that cram our heads full of information to keep us at the top of our game. The idea of taking a full day off once a week seems both impossible in theory and in practice. We rarely, if ever, take a break or a real vacation, choosing instead to work through holidays and break times. Not surprisingly, when it's time for some well-deserved rest or sleep, we may be unable to relax and receive this necessary gift. And while our way of life may seem heroic, there is a frenetic quality to our activity that is disturbing to those around us. And when we do have discretionary time, we indulge in escapist behaviors, 
such as compulsive eating or drinking or spending or watching television because we're just too tired to choose activities that are truly life-giving. See what she's saying? Sometimes we just get going and we're running and we don't know how to slow down. And even when we have time to slow down, we can't. And so God begins to deal with Elijah and he begins to deal with you and he sometimes maketh me to lie down. Because God wants to get us resting, resting to refresh our bodies. But the reason that he wants to get us refreshing our bodies is because he wants to eventually help us on a deeper level, on the level of our souls. He cares about our bodies, yes, but he's trying to also get to our souls. And that brings us to a second thing God does for Elijah, and he'll do for you, and he does for me. A second way he gets him resting. Resting, first of all, to refresh his body. But a second way that he gets him resting is simply this. God also wants to get us resting in his quiet presence. He wants us to come to the place where we settle down and slow down enough to enjoy his quiet presence, resting in his quiet presence. Let's pick it up and you'll see how it happens. Verse 9, we leave, we, when we left, Elijah's in a cave. It says, he went into a cave spending the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, Put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Literally, the text reads, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. What's going on here? God is inviting Elijah to rest in his quiet presence. Do you see that in verse 11? The Lord says to him, go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. He's saying, Elijah, step into my presence. And then it gets interesting. Elijah starts to maybe leave his cave. Remember, he's in a cave on the side of the hill. And suddenly it's like a storm breaks loose. There's a violent wind and rocks are being blown around. Probably Elijah steps back from the mouth of the cave. And then there is an earthquake. Things start shaking. And then there's this fire, maybe lightning bolts landing around him. And each time it says the Lord was not in the, the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. And after all of that, there is this gentle whisper, a still small voice. And look at what Elijah does. Do you see that in verse 13? He, when Elijah heard it, the still small voice, he pulled his cloak over his face. That's probably an act of reverence. Moses did that when he was in front of the burning bush. It said he hid his face. It's like Elijah saying, God is here now. He wasn't in those other things, but somehow he's in this still small voice. He pulls his cloak over to his face and look what he does next. Verse 13, he went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. What was it that brought Elijah out? It was that still small voice, God's quiet presence. You see, God was trying to teach Elijah something. 
And that is Elijah, Elijah. Don't just look for me in the big spectacular things. Don't just look for me, for me when you see the big stunning things. I'm quietly here, Elijah. It's interesting, on Mount Carmel, God had been in the fire, right? God sent down the fire and burned up the sacrifice. But here on Mount Horeb, God was not in the fire. He was in this gentle whisper. He was teaching Elijah that there is a sense when you are in the middle of a hard time, you also need to step into God's quiet presence and be still. Oh, reverent, cover your face, but still. Have you learned to step into God's quiet presence? See, a lot of us, we're used to commotion. We're, we're used to noise and clutter, and we don't know what it's like to do what the psalmist said when he said, be still and know that I'm God. Some of us don't know what it's like to be like that little child in Psalm 31 that's, where David says, I'm like a little child, a weaned child sitting on his mother's lap. My soul is stilled and quieted. Some of us just know what it's like rushing around. And God is saying, listen, don't just look for me in the big commotion. Be still. One of the things that I began to do over these last months is to carve out more time just to be quietly in God's presence. And it became one of the most life-giving rhythms for me. I would find a little time in my day and I would just, if it was a nice day, I'd go for a walk and I would just say, God, here I am. Can I talk to you for a little bit? I just need to know you're here. And I would pour out my heart and I would just enjoy, as it were, the still, small voice of his presence. See, God wants to give you a rest that happens in your soul. But to do that, he has to let you know that he's there. And he's there often in a quiet way. So he gets us resting, resting our bodies to refresh them, and then resting our souls in his quiet presence. But he does all of that to lead us to a deeper level of rest. There's a deeper level of rest. And you see that if you go on in verses 13 and 14 and 15. God's going to bring Elijah to a deeper level of rest, and this is where he wants to get you. He wants to get you not just resting to refresh your body, not just resting in his quiet presence, but catch this. He wants to get you resting in his sovereign control. This is where you really move into the faith rest. This is where you begin to settle down. This is when peace comes to you, when you rest in his sovereign control. Look at how he does it for Elijah. It's fascinating. God asks him a question. Pick it up there in, uh, in verse 14. Or verse 13, it says, a voice came to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back. Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Heziel, king of, over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimishi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. You say, well, what's going on with that? Here's what's going on. God asked Elijah two times the same question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And both times, Elijah gives the same answer. He says, God, everything's just gone south. 
Everything is terrible. I'm the only guy left. They're trying to kill me. Everyone's abandoned you. And then God says to him this, Elijah, Elijah, you need to know something. You need to know I'm still in control. In fact, I am quietly moving. I'm going to send you back and you anoint this guy named Haziel. I've moved him to a position. He'll be the next king of the Arameans. And you go to Jehu. I've positioned him. He's going to become the king of of Israel, and he's going to deal with Ahab's wicked house. And, I, and you're not alone. In fact, I want you to go anoint Elisha. He'll be, he'll be your partner. You will mentor him, and he will succeed you eventually. And by the way, Elisha, I have 7,000 people. You think you're the only one? There are 7,000 that I have kept for myself who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You see what God is saying to him? He's saying, Elijah, I am working in that quiet whisper of a way that you have not seen. You think you're the only one. You think everything's out of control, but it's not, Elisha. I'm moving my people where I want them. And quietly, I'm, I'm reshuffling kind of the stage of history. And I have 7,000 people who've not become unfaithful to me. Elisha, I am in control. Elisha, it's not true that you're the only one. But I'm working in a quiet way. A gentle whisper of a way. The way you can't see. It's not the spiritual pyrotechnics that you saw on Mount Carmel. I'm working in a quiet way, but I am working, Elijah, and you trust me. You rest in my sovereign control. See, over these last months, there have been moments where I felt God was helping me rest in my body so that I could learn to rest in his presence. And in his presence, he began to speak to me and affirmed to me that he was in control of my hard times. I looked back over my journal this past week, kept a journal over these last months. And there were days when I was waiting for results from biopsies and blood tests, when my heart was racing and I felt like running. And I just wondered, where is this going to go? But as I would come and be quiet in God's presence, he would begin to whisper to me, saying, I'm in control. You may not see it, but I'm working. It may not be the big spectacular ways you want, but you need to know I am in control. And I began to learn to surrender myself to that and say, God, I believe you're going to help me. Remember one of the days I was going to see the doctor and get the results of this pathology report. And I remember feeling really anxious. Well, what happens if it's bad news? And it was like the Lord said to me, I promise you this, I will either give you good news or great grace. And I went to that uh, appointment and Linda was sitting there, and we had to wait an extra hour to see the doctor. And I couldn't understand. I knew people were praying for me, but suddenly my heart just was at rest. I thought, okay, Lord, it's either going to be good news or great grace, one of the two. And he was teaching me about resting in his sovereign control. And can I say, that's what God wants you to do. And I don't do that perfectly. There's times I still start racing, and I start worrying. And he brings me back to his presence and to remind her that he's in control. And then finally, the last one. Did you notice that he tells in verse 15, Elijah to go back? Did you get that? He says, go back. Go back where? Go back to where Jezebel is. God's not done with Elijah. And he's having him rest up for one final thing. Resting up for his recommissioning. You see, even in the hard times, God gives you a word that says, I've got more for you. You need to rest up because I'm not done with you yet. I'm sending you back, maybe even back into some of those frightening places in your life. But
but I'm going to go with you, and you're going to go with a new perspective that says, God is at work here. I don't always see it. I don't always feel it, but I am in his presence, and I'm trusting his sovereign control. And if he recommissions me and he tells me to step out, I'm stepping out. And I can tell you, I feel like I'm getting recommissioned. This last Monday, I was in at the doctor's, and I got good news on this last blood report. And I just said, Lord, thank you. I, I guess you do have more that you want me to do. So here I am, Lord. Help me to learn to live in your presence, to trust your control, and to carry out your will. And can I say to you that if you're in the middle of some hard times right now, God wants to get you from running to resting. He wants you to go from just fight and flight to faith. And he's willing to take you on that journey so he can continue to show his greatness through you and to you. So will you let him do that? Will you invite him to do just that? Let's close by doing just that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we gather in your presence. And now as we gather around your table to finish off, we just want to have these few quiet moments in your presence. And we invite you to whisper to us that you are the God who controls every cell in our bodies and every circumstance in our lives. You are the God of nations. Help us to be able to rest in you as we wait for you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about online courses at Heritage College and Seminary, visit our website at discoverheritage.ca or visit our personal website at rickandlindareed.com.